Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. team hope you're having a fab week and like me you're probably on the countdown to Christmas but before that we've got a few episodes and this week I'm super stoked to bring to you my conversation with Cynthia Montaloni so Cynthia is not only a wife and mother of three children who is based in Maui she's a certified metabolic analytics practitioner who trains many world-class athletes as clients. However, Cynthia is an athlete in her own right. So she is a world champion track athlete who specializes in the 400 meters, and she also competes for Team USA in Masters Athletics. She was a 2018 national champion in the 200 meters, 400 meters, four by 200 meters, setting a national record, four times 100 meters and four times 400 meters. In addition, she anchored the world champion gold medal record setting four by 400 meters for Team USA in 2018, which is amazing, and was a world champion in 2019. More amazing is that she primarily does this off a diet that is animal protein and nuts, bringing in a bit of seasonal carbohydrate where required, but she never strays really far from the course. Cynthia's warmth and openness certainly comes through in our conversation and it was such a delight to talk to her. We discussed her journey from an average track athlete as a teenager to a world champion at 43 years of age, the metabolic analytics approach she uses with her clients, the ancestral diet of Hawaiian people and of Pacific people and the devastating effects of the modern diet, being strong as a woman and the importance of sprinting and muscle as we age, which you guys will know is quite dear to my heart. Clearly not the sprinting thing, although I could be convinced, but certainly the strength, the protein and resistance training. And also her training and dietary approach now compared to her earlier years. So we really do a deep dive into this, which I think you'll find as interesting as I did. More than that though, we talked about her book and this has actually just been published last week. So I've got a link in the show notes as to where you can find that. And I've also got links to the things that we talk about and particularly to where you can find Cynthia. What I will say is that Cynthia recorded this outside in her beautiful uh, house in Maui. So the sound quality is reflective of that. It's still absolutely fine, but it might not be as good. But the information is, of course, stellar. So that's enough from me. I'll hand it over to Cynthia. Fantastic. Cynthia, um, welcome. Hello. Aloha. How are you? Aloha. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it is fantastic to be able to chat to you this morning. And I have to say, um, I'm very envious of your background right now because you are on the beautiful island of Maui. Am I right? That's correct. Yes. It's oh. the perfect, perfect temperature and, you know, the warm tropical air. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's another beautiful day in paradise. I actually have some familiarity, not with Maui, but 
if it wasn't for COVID, tomorrow I would have been jumping on a plane to get to Kona. Oh. Um, and I've been to Kona and Waikiki quite a number of times over the last four or five years and been meaning to go over to Maui because they do an, an Xterra event, like a half marathon, mm-hmm. I think, in November or December. Um, and we would love to go and do that. So very envious of you right now. Oh, well, you'll definitely have to put that on the list because we have an expression here. It's Maui no ka oi, which means Maui is the best. Maui is oh. the best island. <laughs> oh, you know, and that's what people say as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I've heard. Um, so, Cynthia, I heard of you first on Human Performance Outliers podcast when you had an in-depth discussion with Zach about your background, about what your kind of where you've come from, what you're doing now, what your passion is. And as soon as I heard you start speaking, I'm like, oh my goodness, I would love to speak to this woman. So I'm so pleased that you've got the time to chat to me just about like if I say unusual, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I gotcha. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, like you, it's an unconventional approach that you take to um, health and well-being, and I think that your message is one that needs to be kind of shared far and wide. Actually, thank so, you. I appreciate first, that. First, can we start <laughs> with? Um, can you just give people a little bit of background on what you do and also where you've come from? Because as I understand it, you, were you a national check, uh, track champion in your college age years? Is that correct? I, on the national team? Uh, no, I actually, that's one of the things um, that I was talking to with Zach about is that I actually never made it as far as a national championship Um, so I shouldn't really be doing this well now in track, if that makes sense, because I didn't have that, uh, raw genetic talent to take me to the top of the world, um, at that time. So I really shouldn't have that raw genetic talent now, except that my passion is finding ways to what I call change our genetic expression. That means we're born with what we, our parents gave us, but through all of the choices that of course they make at first when we're children and then we make as adults, we can change that genetic expression um, to kind of turn on the genes that make us stronger and bring out our inner superhero. uh, And they, you know, and kind of make us be our optimal selves. And that's what I'm pursuing at this time. That and helping is, others pursue. That is like, I 100% agree with you. And that's just amazing because are you 44? Am I correct? Yes. I'll be 45 just shortly in a couple months. Oh, in wow. February, February. Yeah. And you are, <laughs> as I understand it, 2018, 2019, um, national champion in the 400 meters and mm-hmm. also world champion in 2018 and 2019. And also part of the, the, uh, relay team that um were were you a world champion yes. in the relay as well yes so the uh our world champion relay teams um now we have the four by for our age group which is 40 to 44 the four by 100 outdoors the four by 400 outdoors and the four by 200 indoors um, so we were world champions and set national records in all of those as well so the fastest in history and i was um got to anchor the four by 200 and the four by 400 on those relays. So I was really, you know, it's a great bunch of girls and I was pleased to be on that team as well and, and help out. (laughs) Yeah, that is amazing because of course, Cynthia, it hasn't always been this way for you. 
Uh, no, so I didn't run for, I didn't even run at all for about 20 years, at least 20 years. So I, I went to college, ran division one track, um, again, didn't make it to the national level. So I never, it didn't even cross my mind that it would be something I would do in the future. I thought I would not ever run again. Um, and I pursued my career and I had kids. I have three children. My youngest is six. Um, so not even that long ago. And my oldest is um, 15, my daughter, who's inspired me. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't run for 20 years. And then I, my daughter, when she was 11, said, Mom, I want to run the 400 like you did. Can you start training me? And I said, sure. Okay. Uh, I haven't run in a really long time, but probably what we should do is go up to the track and do one 400 and see how that goes. And so we went up to the track and ran our hearts out and uh, probably had a really nice 200 meter split. And then after that, we were crawling across the finish line, <laughs> exhausted. It was the hardest 400 of my life and a non-impressive time about, of about a minute and 30 seconds. So far, a far cry from what I'm doing now and a far cry from what I did in college. Uh, probably pretty decent for my daughter at age 11. But <laughs> uh, so that's where our journey started. And um, so I started training with her, um, made a few mistakes right off the, the get-go, um, tried to just start sprinting like I did in college. Um, mm. And I definitely uh, will get to how I encourage other people to sprint. But that's one thing you don't do is just start sprinting as much as you can um, you without, without taking it slow. That's interesting, Cynthia, because I think all of us have this thing in the back of our head, which is like, well... I used to be able to do that. You know, I should be able to jump right into where I was. And, and you know, age aside, you kind of can for a little bit, like, because I'm an endurance runner. So I know that, that, and I'm going to be really interested to hear how you get people sprinting because, like, I've done a 1500 meter on the track when I was um, 30, I think, when I hooked up with a coach for a very brief period of time. Um, I'm 43 now mm -hmm. and ran against girls half my age. And I just, couldn't run fast at the end of it all of the girls were vomiting basically because they'd run their hearts out and I had I cruised over the finish line in a very unimpressive time so I'm not suggesting I cruised and it was easy right you, you but you had more to give yeah yes I feel like there's potential <laughs> that has yet to be um explored there um but you know I think we're really guilty of of remembering how we how good we used to be trying to jump back into that space absolutely and we also do have a bit of, you know, you have a bit of body memory. Your body remembers running a certain pace, so it tries to do it again. Um, yes. And I ended up with, I ended up tearing my quads right away. Um, I had bruises and everything. And then so I took like about six to eight weeks off and slowly started back again. And um, I ended up that year as uh, fourth in the nation, which I should have been pleased about. Yes. But actually, it was like kind of, the, it was a little bit longer than a year, I'd say. Well, anyway, so the first year I competed, we'll say the first year I competed in Masters Track, I ended up fourth in the nation, got a nice little yellow ribbon, and yeah. I wanted to throw it in the trash because I wanted a medal <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't go into the race expecting a medal, but um, at that point, I thought I'm going to be national champion next year. And then I, I became national champion the following year in the 400 and surprisingly um, indoor, indoor 400 and also the 200, which mm -hmm. is not what I trained for, but um, did for fun as well. Uh, yeah. And the relays. So that was my, basically what kind of what happened. But at that point I decided, okay, well, 
Well, I had a, I had a great coach who contacted me and he said, I think you can become world champion. Um, and I think you have a shot at breaking a record. And so I said, okay, well, if you believe it, then I believe it. And he started training me. So he's a a fantastic coach and he was right. I did become world champion. Um, But at that point I wanted to start really learning what I could do to get there Mm. Um, because I knew that I wasn't, again, I didn't have that, that raw talent that some Mm. of the other uh, ladies maybe had. Um, I knew I had to work for it. So that's when I started learning. I went to um, my mentor, Charles Polican. And uh, took some seminars from him. And then he kind of took me under his wing. And he was so patient with me. I asked him so many questions. Some of them were really, really dumb questions. but Some of them were really smart. So he, he uh, was extremely patient with me and answered my questions. And um, yeah, really helped me become who I am. I, was, I became certified as a metabolics practitioner under him directly. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes he would have other people teach classes, but he was my direct teacher. And, uh, after that continued to, you know, go back and forth with me on different subjects that I needed, that I wanted to ask him about, or would share information with him about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so, and that's what I do today. I help other people become their best superhero self, uh, with my metabolic analysis. Yeah, that's amazing. And we will certainly get into that because I find yeah. um, it's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Like I'm a conventionally trained nutritionist. I did my degree at University of Otago with, along with a, a phys ed degree and then have kind of come up through master's PhD in that line. And for a long time, I really had my blinkers on to alternative ways of looking at health well-being and knowledge because of course when you're in the system you think that is the only relevant and current knowledge that is important to help improve health so you really put your blinkers on and in some ways for some people it can be a barrier to actually learning alternative views and I I um, won't go into too much detail now about you know why I've kind of changed my um, how I changed my thinking but what I will say is I come across Charles Poliquin first on a Joe Rogan podcast Mm-hmm. And I was on my way to the gym and, um, and I immediately loved what he was talking about until the point he said, goblet squats, no way, you know, one should be doing a goblet squat. And I was <laughs> on my way to the gym to do my leg day featuring <laughs> goblet squats. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> but how did you come across Charles? Because it's, again, it's not, um, or at least for us here in New Zealand, and maybe it's Asia Pacific, it's, you know, his knowledge base is a little bit, it's just less conventional. And I don't feel a lot of people have had a lot of um, exposure to it. Yeah, I I, sometimes I'm surprised because I feel like it's common sense and that everybody should know, although he always had a, he always had gems hidden in his encyclopedia brain um, that he would just come out with. But um, I I found out about him because in my 30s, uh, my early 30s, I actually was invited to go to a gym to lift weights, which I had not done since college either. And um, the the owner of the gym was one of Charles's students. Mm. And so he started, he would say things during the the class, the weightlifting classes that I had started to take. And they seemed like really surprising to me. What, what do you mean that you're not supposed to feel bloated after you eat dinner? Like things like that, like, just like, that's how you feel. You eat spaghetti dinner and then you feel a little bloated and then that's how, you know, that's how life is. Uh, No, that's not how life is. Actually, you don't have to have gas at all. What? I mean, this is like crazy talk. (laughs) 
I couldn't believe it. So then he started talking about, well, yeah, you know, you should try to um, eliminate gluten for a couple of weeks and reduce your sugar. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I ate that much sugar, but it turned out I was eating a lot of sugar and I was doing what most 20, uh, late 20, early 30s women were doing, which is mm -hmm. had to have a glass of wine or two a night, mm -hmm. um, you know, to wind down. And I didn't realize just how much sugar I was intaking. So I did that for two weeks um, and I had lo I lost like 2% body fat right off the right off the get-go. And this man, his name is um, Jared Olson. He has Jimmy Jacked uh, or J-Rod trained. And he uh, really a genius, again, one of Charles's students. So that's how I first learned about Charles. And um, then when I was on my quest to become world champion, I just went straight to him because I knew he would have all the answers for me. Yeah, it's amazing. And that he was available and took you under his wing. Like, well, was... and yeah, if you know anything about Charles, he wasn't necessarily warm and fuzzy to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but, no. but he did have a heart of gold, I have yeah. to say. And not only he was the type of, if you really, I mean, so he, yeah, so sometimes he could be abrasive in his interviews mm. and a little bit abrasive in certain situations because he was a true alpha, that's for yeah. sure. But, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, he had a, a really big heart. He was always supportive of, you know, like if I had a fundraiser, I would sell t-shirts to go to my world championships or something like that to travel. He would always buy my t-shirts and give them away. Um, he was very big into giving back to your community. And um, he was always donating and doing some really amazing charities, um, especially um, Destiny Rescue, which they went in years ago, uh, had a, I believe it was a SEAL team, mm. go in and, and rescue um, children from child trafficking. Wow. Um, so yeah, places like Thailand and like South Africa, like all over the world. So he really made a difference in this world. He, yeah. I think he adopted cats, rescued big cats, that sort of thing. So I could gush about him forever because he was so generous to me and um, and I, his knowledge was something that still has not been matched, I believe, by anybody yeah. um, in the strength and nutrition world. So, um, yeah. but yeah, and he was, he was a big fan of my artwork. I paint as well. So like, it wasn't just one thing. He wasn't just like, okay, she, I'm going to pay attention to her because she has the potential to be a world champion. You know, he was, yeah. he he embraced me for who I was as a person and supported me 100%. So yeah. I, I will it, never forget that. <laughs> and I, I strive to pass that along to others, including my Olympian clients and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I embrace them, you know, for who they are. And it's not just about what are they eating? It's about who are they with? Um, you know, what's their sleep like? What's their environment like? Like we really, uh, we have a very personal relationship. Mm. And isn't that so important though, as a coach, you know, like as a nutritionist, like I'm a, a lecturer as well at a polytech and, and I have clients and, and it's regardless of what environment you're in, it's like, it's the relationship with the people, you know? So if I'm trying to help my students and a lot of our students are Maori and Pacific and they, because I'm, I teach on a sport diploma and sport is a great gateway to be able to learn skills that are transferable and particularly for Absolutely. young kids coming through who may not have achieved in the school system having an environment where they feel like you're getting to know them as a person and you're caring about their um, you know outside of just the assessment and, and the the um, education is such an important part to their su success equally with my nutrition clients I might have sit down with someone and, and we have a um, an initial consultation. Food might feature for a third of that consultation, and it's all the other lifestyle stuff which totally impacts on on how they operate in the world, how food's going to affect them, and and just everything related. Like you, it's 
you just cannot isolate one thing, can you? I completely agree. However, it's wonderful that you do that because I think, and you can maybe um, tell me about this, but um, I feel like conventional trained nutritionists sometimes are just, you know, sticking to their rule book, so to speak, and they're not looking at all the outside uh, influencers. They're just going by what the manual told them. And I'm not saying that's all, that is all nutritionists, but I know that mm-hmm. um, in, in here in America, definitely there are some problems with the food industry being at the top of that chain and dictating yeah. things like sugar is good for you to athletes. Yeah. You need sugar, you need pop tarts, you need artificial colors and, you know, things like that. And what, when we know for a fact that they're setting these athletes up to be, um, you know, to have problem, health problems down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's coming from big money and big corporations dictating the nutrition that's yeah. being taught. And I have a real problem with that. I 100% agree, Cynthia, and it's, you know, it's different here in New Zealand, just in that we don't have those same influences, but we take our lead from the US in terms of almost all of our national um, nutrition policy and guidelines. Like it is, if you see the Western world, and I know that you will know this, there is a variation of my plate or food pyramid or PowerShell or however you want to kind of um, illustrate it, um, but mm-hmm. it is the same message kind of going through. I will say, you know, a few years ago, we I worked at um, another university, AUT University, and we put a submission in when they were uh, re- re-evaluating the guidelines. Now, they don't do that often in New Zealand. There's, the, there's no priority put towards nutrition, really, in my mind, from the government. Mm-hmm. In any way, so it's not, they're not going to have a five-year review, which I believe they have in the States. Um, but this was our one opportunity to kind of submit our recommendations for why things might need to change with regards to at least six serves of breads and cereals, et cetera, per day. Right. Um, completely dismissed. Completely Ugh. dismissed. And it How was, disappointing. It was really disappointing. And this was, I believe, around the same time that Brazil had released their real food guidelines, which is one country which really seems to have taken, I'll say they're forward thinking, but actually it's more like they're backward, they're not backward, yeah. you know, they're looking back and, at history and going, ancestral how we thinking. Wrong? Totally, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I love that. Yeah, so do I. And it's, um, and it, it was just really disappointing. And like, there are so many things I want to talk to you about because I know you have a book coming out soon. And yes, I know. We, I feel like we have so many things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things right. which I found super interesting when you spoke to Zach was that you begin each chapter with a story of a warrior, like a, um, mm-hmm. a warrior like a from, yeah, from Hawaii. Yeah. From Hawaii. But, and, mm-hmm. you know, that we've got really close synergies with Hawaii and, and New Zealand with our Māori and our of indigenous course. population. Yes. Yes, my book should be coming out in the next month or so. Um, it's in the formatting stage right now. It has three parts. And the first part is eating to spark your neurotransmitters. Um, so eating to make sure you have motivation to work out. We can talk about that a little bit more. But the second part is teaching you how to sprint. And there's a reason for that too. And the third part is your spirit or giving back to your community and making sure that you have a solid spiritual foundation for your your super optimal superhero self. And so I am inspired by where I live, the you know my beautiful island and the rich history uh, here of ancient Hawaii. And uh, they had these amazing warriors. Well, of course, ancient Hawaiians elite ancient Hawaiians were warriors, um, mm. almost all of them. And they were extremely genetically superior as far as 
um, their size. I don't know if you know anything about that, but so uh, I'll go back to, I start the, each section with a story of an ancient Hawaiian kukini who is a runner for the king. They are um, uh, held high in high esteem. It was like an honor to do this job to run messages or um, run and grab fish from the certain fish pond for the king. And uh, when it was said when these runners were running that you were not allowed to speak to them. If you, you could actually be killed if you were to speak to a kukini while they were running a mission for the king. So they were that revered. Um, and then when they had these annual harvest games called makihiki games they would um they were the the nba players or the professional sports players of the day they were popular and they would bet against one kukini against the other sprinting um so they they were trained in uh different ways than other warriors but basically they were warriors who could run fast and they could also run far and -hmm. they were extremely important so uh yes i talk about that and and one interesting thing is that they were not allowed to eat the carbohydrate rich um, food that's a staple in uh, Hawaiian society called poi. Um, so if you've been to Hawaii, you know that, 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 you know, poi is a very popular food. They were not permitted to eat poi. Their diet was very protein forward, very animal protein forward. In mm. fact, they, um, their main staple, it was said in the ancient texts, was um, rare cooked chicken. So a rare, rare, rare poultry. So that was what, and of course, fish and then vegetables after that. And yeah. sometimes sweet potatoes, but uh, but the poi was not on the list it's for them to be these amazing warriors. And King Kamehameha the Great, who united the islands, yeah, he was seven feet tall and 300 pounds of muscle. And he wasn't even the largest. It was said that his father, um, there's a stone on the big island, the Kaua stone. And it was said that he would lay on it and there's a uh, mark for his head and a mark for his feet where they measured. And he was said to be uh, at least 10 feet tall. So um, when now when I, you read the books, you think, okay, yeah, sure, 10 feet tall, 8 feet tall, yeah. Uh, but then the writers who are living, you know, in Hawaii at the time of the writing, some of the Europeans or the, or the Hawaiian scholars, they're writing these memoirs in the late 1800s, and they're saying, oh, well, yes, we still see 8 feet tall people in Lahaina today. So I take inspiration from these ancient warriors who, you know, what did they do? Of course, they were, you know, they had this amazing training, of course. Uh, but they also had a very strong animal protein diet um, mm. or protein forward diet. So I think that's really interesting to note. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the things which resonated with me from a health perspective, and I'm totally going to get back to you and your story, which mm-hmm. is which I really want to explore that. Um, when I was listening to your, um, you talking about the ancient Hawaiian um, kind of warriors, I immediately thought of Weston Price, who is a dentist in the 1930s who traveled the world to try to uh, to investigate, you know, what is it, uh, which populations had the healthiest uh, teeth and bone uh. structure and what were their diets like? Because he could see, and, and this is, this would inform his kind of teachings in terms of the types of foods that we should be eating so and this is in very recent history like 1930s and so he Mm -hmm. he would have been on Hawaii um on the islands of Hawaii I don't doubt he went everywhere and um including New Zealand and the Pacific Islands and he called the Maori population um some of the strongest fittest population he's ever come across and they were not eight feet tall, but they were muscled and strong. They had strong jaws. 
and he noted that the um, indigenous kind of diet obviously differed. Like if they were coastal, they would um, have a lot of kaimoana or seafood, plus um, a few berries, a few fern roots, but predominantly the, the seafood. But of course, inland um, mutton bird and, and other kind of um, fern root. And then these, mm -hmm. um, this was at the time we had Maori population who were also living alongside European who had come to colonize and there were Maori living within that kind of colonized uh, society as well. And within one generation, Maori started um, their health, uh, their bone structure, their jaws changed, uh, birth deformities, Mm -hmm. um, they dental caries or cavities went from two percent to ninety eight percent. This is within one generation, and it just goes to show that the and he absolutely put it down to the fact that when um, kind of the Europeans came, they bought flour, they bought sugar, they bought oil, they bought alcohol, and oh yeah, mm -hmm. and and these, what about um, does he mention anything about like covering up because uh, the indigenous populations would be exposed to the sun and get plenty of vitamin d and um in fact they're in the polynesian uh tribes it was said that the when the tribes would go to war and then they would look through okay the, the winning tribe would look through the corpses at the end of the war and they would look for the darker bodies because they had stronger bones to make wow. tools from yeah wow. i put that in my book too so I think that the darker, you know, that darker skin and getting that sun exposure has mm. a, a really um, also is significant. So if you're if you're now coming in as a, you know, European, so, you know, missionary and you're asking them to cover up from head to toe when yeah. they're not used to that yeah. and then you're introducing alcohol and all of these other things. Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster for indigenous peoples. That is um, that is so fascinating because I had not heard that before, but it makes perfect sense. Right. And then if we mm -hmm. think about um, food guideline policy, this was coming right back to that food guideline policy thing we were talking about maybe mm -hmm. 10 minutes ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is, like, if you look at, um, like, there is no difference in terms of um, recommendations made for, for any, anyone in the population. And I appreciate it is difficult to individualize population guidelines, but to just translate those six serves of bread, cereals or grains a day into um, adding in some Maori um, uh, terms and go, yeah, these are the Maori food guidelines. These are appropriate. It's yeah. completely inappropriate. It's just so bad. I totally that. agree. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. And, and then, uh, yeah, we could get into that all day long too, because um, they also, the guidelines for, um, for nutrition should be different for women sometimes than men. Um, yeah. And also, of course, different ethnicities within a country should, you know, like you're saying, need different things. It's just, it's right there in the scientific literature. Um, yeah. So it's great that you and I both are able to individualize nutrition programs for people um, because that's what they need. And, but I think the problem is that the guidelines that they're giving for most of the population, it's not working. I mean, look no. at the obesity rates, look at the heart disease, you know, the, uh, diabetes, all of it. It's yeah. not working. How could yeah. you do this for 30 years and think the food pyramid is working? You know, it's not working. So let's yeah. change it for 
for, um, you know, Zach was, uh, when I talked with him, he's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm really careful not to say like, you should do this or you should do that. Like, I think everybody's different and you should do what, what you want to do and what works for you and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but I would say that 80% of the population in my experience would benefit from more protein and a high, higher quality protein. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about soy or pea protein yeah. um, processed. I'm talking high quality animal protein. Yeah. Um, so I would say that would be something that should be in the food guidelines. But of course, the, the opposite is what's being taught. <laughs> so. I know. I 100% agree. And the rhetoric out there today is plant-based is best, you know, plant-based is best for the environment, for our health, for the um, the welfare of the animal. And there's just so much misinformation out there about, you know, some of those processes, which with regards to say the environmental cost of, of raising cattle, you know, so the, the rhetoric is they takes up too much land and it's ruining the land. And I know that you'll be familiar with Alan Savory and his work in terms of like raising cattle and Rob Wolf. Oh, yeah. and, Diana Rogers and their book. Oh yeah. Sacred cow. Cow, Great book. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Totally. And And we, we have that going on in Maui. So we have um, Maui cattle company who um, has grass fed beef. Um, These grazing ruminants are great because we do have wildfires threatening our lands just like everywhere else. Um, So it's great to, to stop wildfires, to have uh, ruminant animals grazing and rebuilding the soil. Um, Of course, we're putting carbon back into our atmosphere with grazing cattle and they're uh, run by a company called Mahipono. Um, Their mission is to uh, create sustainable agriculture for the island so we don't have to ship in so many things. They're taking old sugarcane land because the sugarcane went out a couple of years ago, which is great because the monocropping is not great for the soil. So uh, so they're coming and they're planting varieties of vegetables and uh, fruit trees and all kinds of stuff. And then they're expanding the, the cattle. And I'm a huge, huge fan of Maui Cattle Company. I'm constantly um, writing letters to my local editors about how great it is that we have grass-fed cattle here on our island. Brilliant. And yeah, and letting people know that one, red meat is not bad for you. This is a mm. you know misnomer. And two, that it's great for our island. So I'm, a, again, a huge fan of them. And because it's processed on island, it doesn't get shipped off. We're not shipping it in. Um, it's actually quite affordable yeah. for us. So um, that's a really big deal. And I think more of our island needs to take advantage of that. They just, they just don't know. So. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. Like in New Zealand, our cattle industry is quite different from the United States um, and Europe. There is, I'm not saying there are not issues, but it's certainly different. And the farmers that I talk to just in my kind of social media space, I suppose, they care more for their animals than anyone else would. I feel like a lot of the cattle industry information is conflated to the New Zealand environment. And then suddenly everyone's like, plant-based is best. But you and I both know that when you're talking to someone in there, you know, I constantly see the same issues in, in oh, yes. so many people, men and women. Patterns, actually. same patterns. Same patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, I use, yeah. um, I listened to you on another podcast yesterday, actually. Um, I, I cannot remember what it's called. It's terrible. Keto Warrior, maybe, or, or something. Uh, Lone, Star, Lone Star Keto, girl. There you go, Lone Star Keto. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's awesome. Amber, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. And um, yeah. And you were talking about the whole kind of, you know, smoothie thing, um, which <laughs> yeah. made me laugh, Mike, because in the, the, the pattern is, is that, you know, people don't have enough protein, basically, as you said, and they yes. don't distribute it well across the course of a day, and then they end up blood sugar regulation problems, they're hangry, gaining weight. Mm, it's a roller coaster. Totally. 
Cynthia, however, and they don't understand because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? They're they're told they're supposed to have fruit smoothies because fruit's good for me. So why why is this not working? You know, that's totally. Um, And then over here, it's more like you know, like women women tend to take so much out of their diet, you know, like when low carb high fat came in, women were like, sweet, you know, I got rid of carbs in the eighties. That's no issue for me, you know, in terms of approaches to help them improve their body composition, but it's the inclusion of foods, which I feel that they really struggle with, particularly Mm -hmm. animal protein. Um, Because, you know, for the longest time, um, from a weight perspective, at least, um, people have, you know, they'll eat chicken and fish in like you know, 50 gram mm-hmm. amounts, but not red meat because that'll make me fat. And, they don't, <laughs> they, and I've had women say this to me. Um, wow. I know. I know. It's like there's, so, there's a whole list of things of why red meat is so bad. And it's like none of them are true. It's, no, but, it's, but it's good that you and I are here to educate and, and say like, of course, red meat doesn't make you fat. If anything, the amino acid profile burns fat. Hello, carnitine. I know. <laughs> is a fat burner. Yeah. So Cynthia, what I and, really- and you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt this for one second while I have this yeah. train of thought. The other thing is that sometimes if you, if you read, uh, we'll say a plant-based university's studies, like say maybe Harvard is very plant-based, we'll say forward uh, with their scientists, you'll read uh, red meat is, is associated with the increase for heart disease or something like that in an old article. And then you'll, and then you'll go down and they'll pinpoint what amino acids are good for the heart. And they're all in great abundance in red meat. (laughs) So it doesn't make any sense. No, it's like, if you look, if you individually look at what is good for your heart, um, red meat is it. And so I think the, the saturated fat, uh, gets looped into, you know, omega-6 fats, trans fats. Um, so when they do a research and it says a high fat diet is associated with cardiovascular risk, well, they're not, you know, using nuts and, um, you know, healthy fats, avocados, yeah. they're using junky oils that are yeah. processed. So of yeah. course that's associated with a risk of heart disease, but they lump it all together and they say, oh, okay, well, if red meat is fatty and saturated fat is bad for the heart, yeah. then because of these studies, then it must be bad. And I can't believe that we're such we're in a such caveman state of nutrition studies that that is the case. Like I mean, I, I, sometimes I see the science and people are like, "Oh, science is king. Science is it. The research is it." But they don't understand that the research changes so often, and it's the research of uh, we won't get into the research is moved by companies that want it to go a certain direction, but it changes all the time. It does. And, you know, and I feel like when you're listening to someone and they, and they're, they're kind of putting up a message and, and they are not willing to look at alternative views. I think I would be cautious to listen to that person because they're not taking on board new information. Whereas if you're following people who might pivot on certain issues because of new information that they've learned, this is kind of regardless of what we're talking about, then that's someone Mm -hmm. to trust because it says that they're open to looking at the new information. Interesting on that that, uh, red meat um, thing, and I explain this to almost everyone I speak to, students, clients, on social media and stuff, is that a lot of the, the epidemiological research, which I understand is, is the only research we've really got in that nutrition space mm-hmm. um, that informs our guidelines, when they look at the populations that eat red meat, they don't disassociate fresh meat with processed meat. And often that processed meat is a burger that comes 
in with the bun. bun soda with its <laughs> yeah, the, and the bun is not even bread it's like all these other artificial ingredients <laughs> totally and then and then they yeah. also are much more likely to drink less likely to eat fruit and vegetables they are less likely to be active and whilst of course we've got statistical analyses that quote unquote adjust for these factors you cannot adjust away this I modern completely agree. lifestyle and then if we look at those clinical trials that assess, you know, a, um, for example, a high fat diet in a mice model or rodent model, which I again know that people inform their opinions based on these studies, I mean, that quote unquote high fat diet is soybean oil and sucrose and mm -hmm. the fat content mm -hmm. is 40%. And those mice yeah. are bred to be overweight. That's how, you know, so even the right. breed of the mouse is, it's, just all set up to be so controlled but it's not actually looking at what people think it is and is you know I think the more that we have conversations about this stuff the more that those interested people who are in the general pop who who really do want to look after their health the more they'll understand why it's just a complex thing basically yeah I totally agree I totally agree Cynthia yeah. I really want to know though this is this period which which I am not sure of is so you ran that first 400 meters and in that time of a minute 30 which you said was pretty rubbish and I tried to do the calculation in my head couldn't but I thought probably for you it might have been um <laughs> what was your for one lap if you're yeah. doing several laps then maybe <laughs> yes, maybe not <laughs> um what was your diet like at the time so can you describe to me what a typical day might have looked for you prior to beginning your kind of, I suppose, your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was gluten-free since my early 30s, um, but uh, I had just had my last child. So um, I was, I think I was just finishing breastfeeding and I definitely always tell women, uh, my clients and other women, if you have a child, don't rush getting rid of the fat, especially if you're breastfeeding. Uh, you need that that to feed the baby so it's very normal and be patient and never rush getting rid of that extra uh, baby weight so I had probably had like 25 30 pounds of extra baby weight on me which I was totally fine about and then it was you know I was done breastfeeding so it was time to uh, to start exercising and that sort of thing but my husband and I owned a gluten-free bakery at the time so there was definitely a lot of sugar involved in my life <laughs> yeah uh, at that point and uh, so I was gluten-free, but I was still eating grains. And then at some point, I remember I ran into one of my friends at Costco and I, I was so excited. I told her, I've decided I'm going paleo um, for my training. And she said, oh, I, I said, I'm going to try it for two weeks and see how, how my training works out. And she said, oh, wow, we've been paleo for like 10 years or something. So it turns out her, you know, her boys have autism, so they mm. have to eat paleo and their family and I have a lot of really good insight about that from what they've done. They're like keto paleo and uh, really helps the boys out. But so she's like, oh, we do that every day. We're doing that. That's my life, you know? So I remember Amazing. that. And I remember thinking I was only going to probably try it for two weeks and see how it goes. And I really expected to get slower and have less energy. Mm -hmm. And an amazing thing happened. I think I did a 600 time trial and I ran 10 seconds faster than my previous 600 time trial. Amazing. And I felt energized and my I started my started really losing fat from my stomach 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, of course I know this because what Charles teaches, you know, and that's about the time when I, I sought him out and decided, okay, I need to go straight to the source and, and get yeah. all the information. But yeah, yeah so it, it, it started working immediately for me because um, grains, uh, the grains weren't giving me the optimal body composition, I would say. Mm. Um, uh, and definitely not the sugar. <laughs> so we did, we ended up leaving, closing the bakery and moving forward. Um, and, you know, I started doing the metabolics and, you know, we moved on from that, which was great for our health. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, <laughs> so yeah. can you then now describe for me a typical day's food for you? So the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I have room temperature water with either mm. lemon or lime. I usually lime as I prefer lime with a pinch of Hawaiian sea salt, colored Hawaiian sea salt. Um, and then uh, after I drink about eight ounces of that, I have meat and nuts breakfast, which was coined by Charles. Um, mm-hmm. So chicken and almonds or shrimp and pecans, uh, maybe with some strawberries. Mm-hmm. Or one of my favorites is salmon with goat cheese on top. And that mm-hmm. I sprinkle sometimes a little almond flour and maybe some raspberries with that. Of course, my favorite, if I know I'm having a really, really hard training day, is going to be steak. So I eat steak seven days a week um, or at least seven times a week. And um, so I prefer it when I know I'm going to have a heavy lactic day or a really intense where I I have to run fast for an extended period of time, then I'll definitely have the steak. Um, So steak and maybe we'll say almonds or some other type of nut. Um, I do cycle carnivore a couple times a year in the winter. Um, It helps me really lean out and become stronger. I would say that's how I feel when I'm on it, um, mm. particularly around my birthday. So you'll hear me talk about that often in a podcast. For my birthday, I'd never have birthday cake because it's usually right before the indoor national championships. And sugar is extremely inflammatory. It's really bad for tendon issues, especially. And I wrote an article about that. So um, the metabolic approach to curing tendon issues, like we can talk about that if you're interested. But um, yeah, so I have a cake made of salmon. It's just salmon uh, mixed with egg made into like a cake, like if you were to make a salmon cake in the frying pan or something like that, like a hamburger, but it's in a cake pan, two layers, and then the frosting is goat cheese. So um, that amazing. is the birthday cake. Yeah. Yes. And my and because we have the decorating skills left from the bakery, we can make a little pretty rosette and make it really fancy and put some candles in. And that's, I feel like that's what I deserve. I deserve to uh, treat my body with care yeah. and I don't deserve to rip it apart with sugar right before a championship and, and uh, all that training that I've done, why am I going to flush it down the drain um, if it's going to irritate my tendons and muscles, you know, that 100%. sugar. So it's not worth it and it's not what I deserve. So I think that using food as a reward is something that I, I have tried to change with my children directly mm. at home. Mm. So we don't, they've never had McDonald's or fast food like ever in their lives, my boys. And um, so we don't use really food as a reward. We do have a set day where they can have uh, like, they love ice cream. So yeah. they have, I get the, you know, the best healthiest type of ice cream I possibly can but of course it's sugar but they're young they can their metabolism is flexible yeah. enough for that and their their diet is so good the rest of the week that once a week they know that that's their time for ice cream but I don't use it to reward them um so they learn that um food is fuel I guess nice. yeah that's lovely and your um with the amounts that you have Cynthia so for breakfast for you how much yeah. meat would you have um I would say like roughly I I try to keep it around uh, 40 grams of protein. 
40, sometimes it, awesome. sometimes it's more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But probably yeah, about 40 grams of protein. And then I, if I have coffee, I have it after breakfast. So yeah. I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make is they have coffee. Then I don't eat till one o'clock. And that is in my opinion, not the way to success. And if you, that's what you do and you're listening to this, then you can feel free to reach out to me and I'll explain why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I would hundred percent agree. Yeah. 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 And, and what- so then I, I have a, um, a protein shake, usually whey protein or sometimes beef protein a couple yeah. hours later, Yeah, uh, about two hours later. And that I have with, uh, it's, I'm sponsored by ATP Labs, which is an amazing supplement company out of Canada. They're very mm-hmm. strict, re- strictly regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, I get drug tested. I can't mess around with junk supplements. Like I have to have high quality supplements yes. and I can't recommend to my Olympians any kind of junk supplements. Like I need to be able to trust a company and ATP labs is informed choice um, approved. So that means that um, they go in and they get the certification and they're checked repeatedly um, their products, all of the products. So none of their products can fail a a doping test Mm -hmm. in the whole company. Um, Mm -hmm. So they can't carry anything that would be crossing that line. And so as a result, there's no cross contamination. The, The rules are stricter in Canada than in the United States. So the I just, I can't say enough about how appreciative I am that they are dedicated to making these high quality supplements because I feel comfortable then recommending them to people that need them um, and myself. So I usually do their whey whey protein um, or their supreme beef protein, which I really like too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do that. And that's about 40 grams of protein, 40 to 50 grams of protein. Um, Sometimes I throw a little bit of coconut oil in it. And then after that, oh, and also I add uh, glutamine, which is glutamine and glycine. I could talk mm-hmm. all day about glutamine and glycine and the benefits of that. Um, yeah, but that's my favorite product that they, that they have, uh, glutamine. And then, um, for lunch, I have another, um, animal protein. Um, sometimes I'll throw on a little bit of vegetables at that point, sometimes mm-hmm. sauerkraut, uh, fermented vegetables, or, you know, just a little bit of whatever's kind of around and, uh, usually green. And then uh, a couple hours later, I do either a shake or another protein-based meal. And then a couple hours later, I have my protein-based dinner, um, which then I will maybe add some potatoes. Um, I am a big fan of tubers and uh, root vegetables. So yeah, that would be dinner with sometimes vegetables, sometimes not um, as far as like green vegetables. And then uh, sometimes I'll have a snack before bed, but usually that's about it. Yeah. It's amazing. So I'm eating several times a day. I never fast. I'm an athlete. Yeah. I need the fuel. I need to re- be constantly rebuilding. And um, so yeah. I don't ever fast. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I think, something which, you know, I, I see fasting and I know that you feel the same um, as appropriate for some individuals. And um, you mentioned in another podcast, you know, you utilize it with your autoimmune clients. And, and I, for, um, women who might be in men if, if you like um who are you know might be incredibly insulin resistant or that definitely that autoimmune that really and gut related issues that's really therapeutic uh but for so many people they've jumped on this fasting bandwagon and it's not a 12 and 12 which i think actually for most people it shouldn't be called fasting but even just to eat within a 12 hour windows should be fairly reasonable rather than 16, right. 16 hours um mm-hmm. but but you know, it's not 12, it's like one meal a day or it's a 20 and four. And if that's not working, yeah, they fast harder, you know, they really, really push it. I've seen them push it. And then, you know, their adrenals tank or their thyroid becomes disrupted. And yeah. I, I definitely see a pattern with 
um, overindulging in the fasting and I don't recommend it for my athletes. Um, they absolutely need fuel. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, the only times I really recommend it are like you said, like insulin resistant or morbidly obese, um, population, or if, uh, someone has really bad IBD or UC and they really, they, they went to a party and they ate what they shouldn't have eaten, then Mm -hmm. it does help for the next day. But even then, like I encourage them to do clear liquids like broth, like bone broth, because the bone broth is going to be healing to the, to the mucosal lining. Yeah, um, due to the collagen. Yeah. So yeah. Um, because I think people don't realize that the mucosal lining uh, in, your, in your gut is made from uh, collagen. So yeah. you need it for that as well as your organs. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And we, you know, we do, I say we do fast. We fast when we sleep. Yeah. So if they're getting up and eating in the middle of the night, then that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. Or if they're only sleeping. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, if they're, if they're uh, only sleeping for six hours, that's another problem. So for instance, I sleep for 10 hours. Um, that's my usual sleep pattern. I, sometimes I get nine, but usually 10 is my, is my go-to um, sleep pattern. And that's a long time to not be eating and yeah. especially for an athlete. So I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to eat that steak when I wake up. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I, I remember hearing you say that you sit for 10 hours and I felt mildly envious. I've never been a good <laughs> Um, But I've, I've consistently am, am doing like, um, I do between seven and eight, which, you know, who knows? The whole thing, you know, you don't know like really what the outcome of me getting seven or eight hours at this point in time, um, what impact that might have when I'm 60. But hopefully it's, um, hopefully a lot of other things I do are, are, put me in a position where you yeah. know not only am I aging in a way which I want to age but also you know that there is you know it's it's about health span right it's about being healthy as you age and not just kind of living to exactly um, quality we want quality of life not quantity like it's 100%. fine that our our longevity is increasing but um, we need the quality of life to match it yeah and um, I think people don't realize that it wasn't that long ago that our the average lifespan of a human was really not past reproductive age so mm-hmm. um, we really were, are meant to reproduce and then you know slowly drift off into the distance it's harsh mm-hmm. to say but that's the nature of things and mm-hmm. um, and in some countries um, I know in some African countries the the um, life expectancy is still only around age 39. So um, we take for granted that we think we're supposed to live to 100. So now that we're at the capacity to keep our life going technology-wise, we need to make sure that we have a good quality of life. And unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction with Alzheimer's and obesity and things like that. So it's my hope that it's my passion to help others to correct this early on so that they can, you know, have a really good long quality of life yeah completely mm-hmm. and um Cynthia you're and like people might be listening to this and, and be thinking well you know Cynthia is a world champion you know and she clearly trains a lot every day all of the time she needs that fuel that's not fuel that I need because that's not my life now I'm not at all suggesting you don't train hard I know that you train hard but what really um, surprised me when you were talking to Zach was, you know, I, I don't know why I was surprised actually, because this is so your ethos, because of course you train hard, but you recover just as hard. So yes. talk us through your schedule. So what is your yeah. training like? 
Um, okay, so I'll just say that um, a modified version of how I eat is, is usually successful for most people, mm. um, whether they're training hard or not. But I do think that um, people should exercise. And so I try to implement that into their plan as well. Um, now, people think I train every day. I do not train every day. I run only three times per week. And I lift weights four times per week. So my strength training is usually on the same days. So that means I have recovery days in between. So I'll train Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday for running and strength training, and then Saturday morning for an extra strength training. So I have both of those on the same day. So I have Tuesday, Thursday, uh, most of Saturday and Sunday off. So that's, uh, you know, the majority of my week I'm, is recovery. And we recover the best when we sleep. So I know there's a lot of debate going on right now because we don't know so much about sleep, um, whether you need, to, uh, you know, eight hours or if some people need less. Well, I am definitely on the camp that says the more the better. Um, and that's because of the research involving the glymphatic system, which is like the lymphatic system, but it's only been recently discovered, I think somewhere around 2010, maybe a little bit after, um, they discovered that there's a lymphatic system in the brain called the glymphatic system, and it goes around and it cleans the metabolites and the, you know, all the excess junk out of your brain while you sleep. Mm -hmm. And it works best towards the later hours. The longer you can sleep, the better it is at cleaning that junk out. Mm -hmm. And what is that junk? Some of it is amyloid beta protein, which has been linked to Alzheimer's. Yeah. So you really want to um, get that later sleep. And it's, it's kind of neat. Uh, your glial cells shrink yeah. uh, to about 30% of their size, right, while you're sleeping. And then it allows the cerebrospinal fluid to go through and clean all this out. So if you're constantly waking up, you have bad sleep, um, you're not sleeping enough, your glial cells don't have the chance to do that and clean up your brain. And so you have brain fog and um, increased risk for Alzheimer's and things like that. Um, and it's really early on that this happens. So you really need to, by your 20s, make sure that you're getting good sleep quality for this process to happen. Mm, the I other thing is that um, the deeper stages of REM sleep happen, the later you sleep or the longer you sleep. And so if you're needing uh, brain activity, neuroplasticity, of course, we need that for motor skills. We need that for thinking. Um, and if you want to be creative, they've linked creativity to REM sleep. So you might notice that the later you sleep, the more vivid your dreams are. If you remember your dreams or the crazier they are, the crazier your dreams are, the better your sleep is. So you yeah. want those crazy dreams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I 100% agree. And isn't it fascinating? This just goes back to what we were saying about how science is changing all the time, that they discovered this system in our brain like 10 years ago, whereas they've been studying the human body for thousands of years. And like the quads are actually no longer quads. They're like... What's five, Cynthia? Quint, the, like the extra muscle yeah. that we've got as part of our like um, our leg muscles. Like I remember thinking, we know nothing. You know, the, yeah. the more you learn, the more you realize you know absolutely nothing. And I I wholeheartedly agree with you with that sleep, uh, what the importance of sleep, and particularly like with growth hormone, with with testosterone, with mm. oh, absolutely, super important uh, uh, kind of time for replenishment and and restoration of those. With your regards, Cynthia, to your strength training, if you strength train four days a week, do you do upper body, lower body? Do you split? How, how does that look for you? And will you be revealing details in your book? about about uh yeah oh yeah the book's gonna be great i actually have a whole appendix of um contributors so i have contributors um, from professional 
uh, Olympians, um, uh, Otto Bolden, who does the commentating for all the NBC Olympics, one of the best sprinters in the world, has contributed a beginning sprinter workout, um, for instance. So I have professionals as well as um, my coach who gives a whole week of workouts. I think he's like the best coach in the world. Of course, I'm biased. And then uh, Canadian speed coach. I mean, there's a huge list, but also sprinters who are older. So mm -hmm. if you're saying, okay, well, they're a professional sprinter, you know, I, and I'm 50 and I'm starting out or I'm 60 and I'm starting out, what does this have to do with me? I do have 80 year olds giving sprint workouts as well. Two 80-year-old ladies have contributed their favorite sprint workouts. So there's no excuse. <laughs> um, but yes, as well, I have a couple of um, contributors for strength training. And uh, one of them is my mentor now, who is Preston Green. He is the strength and conditioning coach of the Florida Gators. And if you don't know who he is, you should look him up because uh, ESPN and Sports Illustrated has call, have called him a legend in strength coaching and one of the best strength coaches in the country. He was one of Charles's top, uh, I would say students, but they were very close. They were more than students. They were great friends. Um, so he is my mentor now. So wow. now he is the one who's super patient with me and answering all of my crazy questions. <laughs> um, so thank you, Preston. But uh, yeah, and then my other, um, one of my other contributors is Malcolm William of Source Performance, and he's my strength coach. So yes, um, I will be giving details because I think that strength training is a huge part of learning how to sprint. You need that foundation to prevent injury and to, um, you know, hold off sarcopenia as you get older. That's why I think sprinting is actually, you know, possibly the ideal type of training that um, we should do as we age because we need to hold on to that muscle mass and uh, not to be offensive in any way, shape, or form because endurance training is awesome as well for uh, exercise. but if you're looking at healthy biomarkers, it does have, it doesn't have as positive of healthy biomarkers as sprinting does. It has a little bit more oxidative stress. Yeah. Um, you're going to have less muscle mass because yeah. you're burning it out. It's catabolic. So it's overtaxing. Uh, and then I talk about in my book, how sprinting increases BDNF, which is brain derived neurotropic factor more than endurance training. There's a few studies on that. Um, and why is that important? Well, BDNF is what creates the neuroplasticity uh, in our brain. And we really only have the bulk of that neuroplasticity until age 25 when our mm -hmm. brain stops developing. So mm -hmm. kids are like sponges. They can learn. They can learn. Uh, it has to do with our motor skills, too. They can learn new motor skills. They can learn um, you know, from school and that sort of thing. And then at age 25, oh, it tanks. And we really have to work hard to spark the neurotransmitters to keep that neuroplasticity going. And one of the ways to do that is sprinting. Yeah. Um, so of course, it does increase with exercise in general and endurance training, but they found 20% uh, greater learning capacity after sprinting than after endurance training. And to me, that was a big deal. 20%, you know, oh, awesome. Yeah. I so I really, I really feel passionate that um, when women maybe turn age 40, instead of thinking, okay, maybe I should train for a marathon to get in shape. I'm, I'm saying, hey, to maybe start to learn how to sprint to get in shape. And of course, strength training is, is a big part of that. So I, to go back to the original question, I strength train uh, lower body on one day and then upper body the next day. And then I have a, a break and then I train lower and then upper again. Nice. And that's so, how you yeah. do four days. Do you know, Cynthia, yes. I, it's interesting because I mean, I love running and like I, you know, when I'm out there and I'm running, 
quite slow now compared to, you know, my previous uh, years when I was younger, but the, the feeling I get and just the sense of kind of calm and peace and, and achievement as well. Like I 100% will always be a person who will love long distance running. I mean, I say long distance, I'm not as awesome as other people, you know, like, but I get what I, I get from it, what I need most of the time, but I completely mm-hmm. agree with you. Like it is a catabolic activity. It can break you down. And a lot of people do into their kind of mid thirties, mid forties. And they're like, right, I need something I want to get in. And a lot of the time it is, I want to get in shape. So I'm going to train for, you know, a half marathon or a marathon and they end up gaining weight because they're not focusing on, because they're unaware that actually it is catabolic. It can make you hungry. It impacts your blood sugar regulation in a negative way if it's not done in a, in a well-fueled situation, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember I gained about five kilos for when I did my first marathon wow. for all of those same reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not. And they, and they complain that their belly fat doesn't go away. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. And that's because the, they have an increase in stress. So the cortisol, yeah. of course, is one of the reasons you carry that belly fat. And that low intensity, long, slow distance, um, sometimes in, in studies has shown that it actually makes you hold body fat, especially visceral fat. And yeah. sprinting has been uh, renowned over and over for eliminating visceral fat. Dr. Sean O'Mara, if you're not familiar with him, he, yeah. d- he got a grant from the National Science Foundation and he does visceral fat scans. And he is always comparing sprinters to uh, distance runners or vegans and uh, animal protein carnivore. Yeah, Dr. Sean O'Mara, uh, he's on Instagram and he's brilliant. He's really found, he's a huge advocate of sprinting as we age as well. And so, yeah, in my book, I, I, I teach you how to take those steps slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, not too fast. And, you know, if someone's interested in how do I start? Uh, and also, if you're listening and you want to start on my YouTube, I have a dynamic sprinting warm up. And I encourage just doing that warm up for a month because then you're going to um, start to develop the right form for to get ready to sprint, I guess you'd yeah. say. That's awesome. And and I think the, the whole message around the strength training is so important for women as we age. And women are so resistant as well. And my clients, when they first see me, they would, would have seen me on Instagram, you know, very regularly talking about the importance of strength training. And for whatever reason, um, women are just not, um, they just don't take to it the way that, you know, ideally they would. But, you know, as we age, we, we lose muscle and bone mass, you know, year on year. And you talked about sarcopenia and also dynopenia, you know, that muscle function mm-hmm. loss. And one mm-hmm. of the major reasons for um, early mortality as we age is is actually falls and so if you cannot use your muscles and if you cannot uh, correct yourself and this is the thing that we lose as we age is that ability to kind of trip but also correct ourselves then you fall you break a bone and then you know your early death rates just accelerate in that situation Couple that with Absolutely. a nutrient poor diet and not for want of trying because you've, you know, it's not necessarily you've not had a quote unquote healthy diet. It's just you haven't provided your body with the raw materials to, right. to like, and, really- and as we age, we absorb less protein. So we need more protein. Need more I mean, protein. I, when I went to go visit my parents, my mom is um, 80 
and she was she has a sweet tooth she's so cute she was keeping a little package of gummy bears in her pocket I was like mom oh she was okay I'll tell you that story real quick hopefully she won't be embarrassed I'm telling it but so I did my metabolic analysis on her I measure 14 different places of where you store your body fat and the ratio between those places it's based on Chinese medicine tells me things like how your thyroid's functioning uh, how your liver's functioning what nutrients you're deficient in but I can also tell how much sugar you're eating and yeah. so I measure her I said wow gosh mom your your sugar measurements kind of out of control and um and she's like I don't know I don't eat that much I told you I just you know I have my little piece of bread with um peanut butter and jelly and I'm like okay well that's already sugar you know but she's like but I, I that's all I eat I really don't eat a lot and I said okay well the sugar measurement's coming from somewhere and then she like a few minutes later she goes well I do have this bag of gummy bears in my pocket all day <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, mom, you're so cute. Oh, so I, I tried to take the gummy bears away at first, and, which was hard, but she said, okay. And I gave her whey protein with glutamate. Awesome. And the glutamate, one of the things the glutamate does is it, um, it uh, forces glucose into your cells without spiking your insulin. So basically it, it curbs sugar cravings. So I gave her the, the whey protein with the glutamate. Uh, she loved it. It was like chocolate, you know, talk chocolate shake because it, it's really high quality, so it tastes good. And um, so a week of that, and she already lost ten pounds, you know, and uh, and she felt great. And so she's been keeping up with that. She's been doing awesome. It's this has been like a um, gosh, a year and a half since this happened, but uh, yeah, yeah. And they're they're really my parents are really open to learning about all of this. So um, yeah. Yeah, so it just just by introducing ex, uh, extra protein in her diet, she mm. was able to um, start losing fat and maintain muscle mass. And it's never too late. I mean, she, you know, like I said, she's eighty, so yeah, it's never too late to make that change and become stronger. I completely agree. And I was, um, I'm a fan of um, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I believe you oh, yeah. might be as well. She's amazing. And I remember, yeah. I was talking on a podcast about how, you know, because for an older population, it can be really difficult. She was also close with Charles, by the way. It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Actually. And I think I may have heard that actually on a podcast. Yeah. Again, I almost prefer was... everything I say with like, oh, I read this paper or I listen yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> because you're always researching, which is an excellent thing. So Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, lo I love Gabrielle. She's awesome. She is. And she was. She's, I, I mentioned her in my book as well, her work. Awesome. And she's such an advocate for protein. Um, equally, though, she recognizes, you know, some people might not have the appetite for, you know, um, 200 gram steak. So she suggests have some branched chain amino acids to bump up the leucine to get that muscle protein stimulus you need, yeah. particularly as you age. So you can drop down the amount of protein that you have within that meal. And I've seen those studies that say, you know, you can get away with maybe 15 grams of whey protein as opposed to 25 grams if you've got six grams of BCAAs alongside with that mm -hmm. um, leucine. And so that's something which I, which I, I suggest to some of my clients because it's a real struggle. And I think digestively, Obviously, when you don't eat that animal protein, you um, you know, your body kind of down regulates those enzymes required to digest mm -hmm. it. And so that whole I feel really Except, full, yeah. it sits in my stomach, um, that can change, but initially definitely need a little bit of help with that. So I imagine you must talk to your clients about the same the same kind of things. 
Uh, yeah, I have my clients when they exercise take um, EAA by uh, ATP Labs, so it has the, nice. the BCAAs in it as well. But I, I don't use it really as a substitute, so to speak. I really, really just push the animal protein. And the reason why is because research shows that the more animal protein you eat at the first part of the meal. So in other words, if you have your, if you're eating paleo and you have your meat and your nuts and your vegetables, you don't eat the vegetables first. Yeah. Um, you eat the meat first and that stimulates hydrochloric acid and gastrin, uh, which is also uh, linked to happiness. So it really just gets your digestive system going where it needs to be. And yeah. so I'm a really big proponent and really trying to get that animal protein in, but eating in the correct order. Mm. Um, I can I, you have probably seen this as well, but I could go on all day about people who have digestive issues where they have acid reflux or um, UC or IBD. I mean, and it's an easy fix. And that is uh, glutamine for sure to heal the mucosal lining, glycine for collagen, and also eating animal protein. Yeah, They're resistant at first because if they have acid reflux and things like that, the doctors will tell them don't eat red meat, which is incorrect. That's not how it works, <laughs> but sorry to say, but uh, from my experience with hundreds of clients, if they do introduce animal protein, they can introduce it just a little bit at a time at first if they want to, but if they are eating that as the first thing of every meal, their stomach starts to heal. Um, but the, it's very important that they eliminate fiber and plants as well at that point um, yeah. because they're very irritative and they need to change the gut bacteria. Um, I recently wrote an article about um, Prevotella overabundance and the different types of gut bacteria associated with diseases. And Prevotella uh, mostly comes from eating a lot of plants um, and a lot of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of, one of our commensal gut bacteria, but um, when it becomes overabundant, it's related to every single disease, rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, all the major diseases, definitely COVID. If you look it up um, in the COVID studies, the worst patients, uh, the ones that were doing the worst, had Prevotella overabundance and they had lack of bacteroides. And the bacteroides comes from eating animal protein. So yeah. you really got to change your gut bacteria by eating that animal protein first. Now, I, ha I do have a friend who is vegetarian, and she's like, I just will not eat meat under any circumstances. And she's not, she won't get better because she won't eat that animal protein. You know, she just, she's sticking to the plants. And now you know, she's got the really bad acid reflux, which usually comes from H. pylori, yeah. um, a gut bacteria, pathogenic gut bacteria. Actually, I have some interesting information about that if you want to hear. I'm getting on. off on tangents. but So this is an example of how science changes. Um, when I started really diving into H. pylori, which is, again, a pathogenic gut bacteria, I found out that it used to be prevalent in pork, but it's now changed to be prevalent mostly in lettuce and um, raw vegetables. So people are getting, if you eat a lot of raw vegetables, you're, you have a really high chance of getting H. pylori. And H. pylori is what they think causes ulcers and a lot of the acid reflux. Again, you're not eating animal protein, which is sim stimulating your hydrochloric acid, which kills pathogenic gut bacteria. So if you are not eating that and you're eating an influx of these plants, you're actually fostering these really bad um, pathogenic virusy kind of bacteria. And so um, the H. pylori research from maybe like eight years ago, they were thinking, okay, well, we know that H. pylori does use glutamine as a fuel source. So maybe if we eliminate glutamine from the subject, whether it was a mouse model or human model, then the H. pylori will go away. Well, what do you think happened? They eliminated the glutamine 
and the gut mucosal lining couldn't be repaired because that's one of the major things for repairing gut mucosal lining and inflammation became worse inflamed and they've discovered only recently like last year i believe because i read a lot i read like uh, at least 50 medical journal articles a week and like four books so i found this study where they discovered that h pylori uh, swims towards inflamed tissue and likes to live there. So then they gave glutamine, excess amounts of glutamine, you know, it's a supplement, and discovered that, oh, well, the glutamine heals that inflammation. And so then the H. pylori don't live there. And then they were able, able to eradicate most of, most of the H. pylori by healing the gut lining instead of, even though they did use it as a fuel source, sometimes they were disappearing because they had no place to live. Because when we have inflamed tissue, our, our body makes this little um, bleach bath. I don't know if you know that, but the cells come around and they make a little bleach bath around mm. the, um, the pathogen and kill it. That's how they kill it. That's and ma- so, I've never heard that described before. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they found that the H. pylori, instead of being killed, they survive the bleach bath and they live in the inflamed, they swim towards the inflamed tissue. So when I wrote my article about um, uh, tendon issues, I talk about something that Charles pioneered. You'll hear him maybe talk about it one or two places, but not much. We talked about it, but he would say, okay, if you have joint pain, it's actually a back in, you know, it's non-traumatic joint pain. All non-traumatic joint pain comes from bacteria that settles in your joints, which Mm -hmm. nobody will say, nobody tells you that. So he said, like, for instance, elbow pain is blastocyst hominis, which is a gut bacteria that has Mm. escaped through the tight junctions that have opened up because... Uh, your gut's being ripped apart by grains and sugars. So it escapes into your bloodstream and settles in your joints. So the H. pylori study was just an ex- one example, and I don't think they've done enough research on this, where certain pathogenic bacteria will swim towards the inflamed tissue and live in it. So yeah, maybe you your Achilles is inflamed because you're running too much, but I think that they, it's my hypothesis that these and the research backs up that these bacteria are swimming towards those inflamed tissues and living there. So in spontaneous Achilles ruptures, it's actually, they found staph, an overabundance of staph. Interesting. They they took biopsies from the same person's, same people's hamstrings, and there was was no staph there. So the staph had settled into the Achilles tendons. So I give my clients protocols on how to get rid of that staff in their tendons. And uh, I've been able to reverse Achilles tendonitis in as little as two weeks without any other type of physical therapy or just with nutrition change and uh, some supplements. So, but I do have a, an article about it on my website. Awesome. And that I'm goes into, yeah. to your website, yeah. Cynthia, like that is just such a wealth of information. And I think, I feel like because it's an unconventional way to approach, you know, uh, health, a lot of the stuff is dismissed, but what can't be dismissed is the success rate that you have, you know, and I think that this is, that's the important thing. The important thing is, um, well, one, you're very evidence-based and science-based, but you don't just look at the science literature. You use your practical experience and you mm-hmm. use what we know from, um, from, I suppose, our ancestral kind of underpinnings to inform how you kind of approach your protocol with different people. And Absolutely. It's, it's successful, mm-hmm. you know, and I just think that that can't be ignored and... Um, um, I find that really interesting with regards to that bacteria and the tendon stuff, because so many, particularly as we age, we're like, oh, our body's breaking down and we almost feel it's inevitable. You know, like you've 
picked up and become world champion in your 40s when other people are ready to kind of call it a day and, and sit in front of Netflix, you know, like. Well, um, what I'm most proud of more than the gold medal is the fact that on that race, I ran faster than my indoor fastest time in college. So I was really not, again, I'm not supposed to be running this fast. Yeah. Um, so there, why am I running this fast? Well, I, I'm happy. That's why I'm here. And that's why I wrote the book. I'm happy to share with everyone. Um, what has worked for me and will it work for everyone? Uh, you know what? Maybe not, but it, I think it'll work for a large percentage of people from my experience, just like you, you in your job, you see which protocols work for which individuals and that a majority of people will benefit from certain things in their nutrition. Yeah, totally. If that and makes sense. It completely makes sense. It's like there are these underpinning kind of foundations and then you're fluid as to what's going to fit the, the individual you work with. Now, Cynthia, mm -hmm. one last thing, and I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but I know you're fine. This has been enjoyable. I have actually haven't gotten to talk about the H pylori with anybody. We usually don't even get that far. So, um, so you're getting new information. <laughs> I know. And I feel, I feel so privileged actually. Um, now, I am, so I'm not a sprinter and I was chatting, actually, I have another um, podcast I'm a co-host on called Fitter Radio and I was chatting to Bevan, my um, co-host on that yesterday. It's his podcast and I just help, um, uh, um, help him out. And um, I don't, do, so I know you'll be familiar with the central, with the central governor theory, you know, like what allows us to push ourselves to the limit, because that's how I see one of the things I feel I, um, that, uh, one of the reasons why I probably go towards long endurance training is you don't have to go so hard and it doesn't have to hurt so much as a 400 <laughs> meter sprint on the track. I don't know that I'll ever be able to teach my brain to train in a way that will allow me the benefits that sprint training could afford me. Do you like, yeah. because when I think about like the doing like a sprint warm up, I'm like, that's awesome. I could probably do the warm up, but I don't know that I've got it in me to push myself hard enough. I think I might be a bit soft. Yes. To be honest. I know. I think you could do it. And I think that even if you continue to um, run endurance because you love to do it, you should incorporate sprint training in once a week. So anyone out there that loves distance running, still incorporate your sprint training in once a week. It'll actually help you get faster in your distance running and it'll help you with that last kick. Why? Because it actually will spark your um, catecholamines, which are the neurotransmitters that are responsible for that drive. So you can actually start to change your brain chemistry with one, the foods you eat, but two, how you're practicing so i you know if you start with that warm-up and then you start to um move on to like uh, give examples of field workouts to, uh, start to run on the grass you don't have to go fast right off the get-go but just yeah. get a little bit faster and a little bit faster make sure you time yourself and guess what it's fun to run fast it is so much fun think about when you're a kid and you're running across the grass like it is so much fun to run fast so i want to share that with everyone and um it, you know, of course, injury free, you don't have to be worried about getting injured if you have high quality animal protein to protect your tendons, uh, with all those great amino acids. And if you uh, just really start slow, and just uh, increase your speed as you go every week, just try to get a little bit faster, a little bit faster, don't push it the first day. But yeah, it's, it's so much fun. And you absolutely can do it. Oh, Cynthia, thank you. That's do you know what I as you're sitting there talking, I'm like, that is so achievable. You know, that once a week, because yeah. I'm, we're about to do an ultra marathon uh, 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 next weekend, but it's only 50K. So for an ultra, it's actually a baby <laughs> ultra. 
Um, but, but what I'm really looking forward to is beyond that. Um, I really I strength train maybe about three, two to three times a week, but I'm looking to kind of bump that up and also put in some of what you've talked about because I genuinely have been inspired over the last couple of weeks since kind of discovering you on human performance outliers. Wonderful. And yeah. uh, Charles did say that uh, there's a remarkable increase in strength by, from going from three days a week to four days a week. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so pleased that you mentioned that again, because that is, I'm, I'm definitely going to make a note of that too. One last thing, Cynthia, and I think I already know the answer to this um, from how you described how you eat, but I was wanting you to share with the listeners how easy is the way that you do things for your diet? How easy is it for you to incorporate that in your family diet? Like it's for my kids, like, you mean? Yeah, for your kids. Cause so, so yeah, my kids are six and seven, my boys, and my daughter's 15. Mm. Um, okay, so my husband actually has been carnivore for the past four weeks. He's, he was like, you know what, I'm going to give this a go and see what ha- this happens. And he's just thriving. He's having major increases in muscle mass and um, uh, genetically he's predisposed to having insulin resistance. So if he doesn't watch his carbs, he really, you know, it affects him. So he really has leaned out from that. He is a wrestling, has been a wrestling coach for 20 years. And um, so I, we also train wrestlers in strength coaching because I'm a strength coach as well. So uh, we had the number one high school female wrestler in the nation last year. She won out of all the age classes and all of the weight categories, number one in the nation. And uh, we had her eating steak before her matches as well, for instance. But um, so, uh, yeah, so we uh, really into the uh, helping the athletes thrive. I'd say like the way, what, sorry, the way I eat, what was the? Yeah, yeah. So is it, so with your children? Like yeah, my children, right. So yeah. I was going to say, so we, we share it with our athletes as well. But so with our children, we um, have a really strong mentality with, and I guess that's where I started talking about my, my husband, because he's a very, like, he's got the coach's mentality. So we coach our children and we coach our children that this is what we eat for fuel and they do enjoy it. I mean, if you ask my seven-year-old what his favorite food is, he'll say steak, 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 and steak. <laughs> so he loves it. Now my uh, six-year-old loves carbs a little bit more. But, um, and we do let them have, uh, you know, like they have rice and um, they have potatoes, of course, all the time. And um, sometimes they have gluten-free bread and that sort of thing. Again, they're more metabolically flexible, Um, but we have, they eat the same way we do. And of course, our daughter is, runs track as well. And she loves to eat how we do because she wants to be strong like mom. And so she just really mimics uh, everything we do. We, We don't have any problem with it. Like we don't really accept when they say like, oh, I don't want to, like they don't really like eggs. We don't eat a lot of eggs, but every once in a while we'll eat eggs. So they'll say, I don't like eggs, but we don't really accept that as an answer. They, they have to eat the eggs. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, makes total uh, sense. So when I see people with our other kids and they'll say, I can't get my kids to eat steak. They'll only eat macaroni and cheese. Like I absolutely cannot relate to that. Yeah. Uh, at all because this yeah. is our lifestyle and this is how we eat. They don't feel deprived. Um, yeah. I do. I do let my daughter know, like, hey, if you, if there's like a party at school or something's going on and you want to eat a cupcake or a slice of pizza, like, of course, eat it if that's what you want to do. Like, I'm yeah. not gonna be like, don't eat that, and so that that's the social aspect of it, right? Unfortunately, that's the way it is. Is that to feel socially accepted, you might, but she she chooses not to. And what happens is then she becomes the influence on her peers. Yeah. So then her peers look at her. They look at how she's built. She's five eleven. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she's about, you know, 15, 16% body fat. Um, she's still got kind of her, she's actually still growing. She's still got her baby fat on her, um, yeah. but uh, not, not a lot, obviously. But um, so she's 5'11 and a half and she's, you know, thriving in track and field. And they look at her and they are like, oh, okay. Like I see, you know, she's making this choice and she looks like that and she's performing this way. Maybe I should make that choice too. So it's really inspiring for our family to then have the influence on others. And people, you know, look at my husband's progress. I have a progress pic of him on my Instagram. I'm looking over there. He's over there. But uh, on my Instagram where he's was went from 280 pounds to like, you know, 215 or something like that, um, just by changing his diet uh, to highly animal protein based. And uh, so people look at that and they become inspired. So I think if you could do that with your family at home, then it will in turn inspire other people to make healthier choices as well. I completely agree. Sorry for the long answer. (laughs) No, no, I love the long answer. And it's just, I love how you are completely unapologetic about your approach. And you're like, this is, you know, this is what we do. And I feel like um, yet you're also, how you've just described it sounds completely reasonable and appropriate. You know, like I certainly wouldn't say that's a zealous um, kind of like take on it or anything, Cynthia. And I think you're such a breath of fresh air. And I feel like, you as a like a your 44 year old mother and I you said that a number of times during another podcast you're just a mum um yeah <laughs> being a mum you know at all but you know it is completely achievable what you've done which hopefully is inspiring for other people who are just wanting to make even small changes and that's all that they really have to kind of start with as you did yeah just, I always say start where you are just start where you are I'm not anything special. I was not a national champion back in my day. I did not go to the Olympics. I think that's where why I emphasize that. I was 30 pounds overweight after my last child. I'm just like everybody else. Uh, you know, I started from scratch uh, four years ago with my training in order to become world champion too. I really feel like anybody is capable of optimizing themselves to be their superhero self. Totally. And um, Cynthia, you're amazing and I could actually talk to you all day and I would Thank love you. <laughs> to be able to pick your brain on other topics in the future because that would be amazing. Feel free to reach out. Lovely. Thank you, Cynthia. And uh, I will um, link all of what you've just told me. I'll link your website and um, those articles. Preston Green, I'll link his um, information in the podcast notes when this yeah, goes he's out. He's not really on, he's not on much social media, but um, he's Gators basketball. So, um, but if you, if you Google him, you'll find his, I think he was just on ESPN for uh, the episode of Gym Rats and you'll get to see a little bit of the type of training he does with his athletes. And it's very inspirational. So you can look up that as well. Awesome. Lovely, Cynthia. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Mahalo. So that was my conversation with Cynthia and I really hope you guys loved it as much as I loved bringing it to you and I can't wait to jump back on the call with her at another time to talk more in depth about the work she does with her clients as a metabolic analytics practitioner because she's really learned from one of the world's gurus in strength and metabolic training Charles Poliquin which would have been absolutely amazing. All the links to what we discussed, will you can find them in our show notes, including a link to her new book, which I've just ordered and I can't wait to take a dive into. It sounds amazing. 
Next week, I sit down with Christopher Kelly from Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Now, those of you who are in the health and wellness space will know Chris from his very successful podcast, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, and his successful health business of the same name. I met Chris at an Ancestral Health Society conference back in 2016, and I just absolutely love what he's done to not only turn his health around, but also positively impact the health of thousands of people. So I really look forward to bringing you that talk. Until next week, you can find me over at Facebook, Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter, at Mickey Willardin, where you see much more of both my day-to-day and what I'm doing, and the studies that I'm reading and tweeting about. And also over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can find a host of information around recipes, blog posts, how to become a member of my Real Food Nutrition group, and sign up to get my weekly emails, my 28-day meal plans around fat loss, athletic performance, and just eating really good food, and also our weekly forums where we have a weekly Q&A on Facebook, but you can always, as a member, jump on in the platform and ping me a question. It's basically access to me 24-7. Until next week, have a great week.